Hello, welcome to the first podcast for the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health, a new journal launching August 2017. Now we're putting out some online first papers ahead of our first issue, and one of them is today's topic, a case report of the first ever bilateral hand and forearm transplantation in a child. I'm delighted to be joined today by the lead author of this report, Dr. Sandra Amaral. Dr. Amaral, please will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Sandra Amaral, and I'm an assistant professor at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I work as a pediatric nephrologist and the uh, medical director of the kidney transplant program and the hand transplant program. And I'm here representing a very large multidisciplinary team today who worked with me to produce this case report. Well, we're so delighted to have you with us, Doctor. And so your paper, it reports the first successful bilateral hand transplantation in a child. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about the background to this field? How, how have previous attempts gone, for example? So there has only been one prior attempt in a non-immunologically similar child, and that was a 16-year-old girl in Mexico, and unfortunately um, she died uh, shortly after surgery with some intraoperative complications. And so uh, to date, there have not been any published reports of any uh, hand forearm transplantation between non-immunologically similar children. And so what makes this case so important, obviously aside from it being the, the first example, what really makes it stand out? Well, we showed for the first time that with extensive planning, careful execution, and supportive post-surgical therapies, such as pediatric-specific occupational and physical therapy, hand transplantation from an unrelated donor can succeed in the child. Our patient's now able to write, dress, and feed himself more independently and efficiently than he was before his operation. So I think that that's probably the most important finding. What was the, the rationale exactly for choosing this particular child to operate on? This boy was quite unique in that he had suffered from staphylococcal sepsis, which caused the quadrimembral amputation so that he lost his limbs from uh, systemic infection. And unfortunately, that infection also caused acute uh, renal cortical necrosis. And so he also lost his kidneys um, from the event. Um, and so he had undergone peritoneal dialysis for two years and then received a living-related uh, kidney transplant from his mother. And so he his life was already very much accommodated to a lifetime of immunosuppression, having to take medications twice daily. He had also understood the rigorous demands of therapies because he had been doing that for his quality of life and with his residual limbs. And so many of the demands and the risks that we think about, to some degree, he um, was already experiencing. What were the key findings from the case? First, I think one very promising and unique finding as noted in our paper is how the patient's brain adjusted to the presence of new hands six years after this child lost his hands to amputation at age two. So um, as you can imagine, in many adults who receive um, adult trans uh, hand transplants, their brains are remembering those activities of um, writing a name or drawing a picture but our child lost his hands before he was able to do many of those things with his you know, brain um, messages to the hands. So we're actually observing a cortical remapping for the hands, um, and the brain recovered its ability to innervate the muscles and control hand motor activity after the surgery. Um, but this is certainly very interesting that someone can have kind of primary learning in the brain, even when this critical window of development didn't happen for him since he was amputated um, prior to that. 
Additionally, I think that we've learned that what the demands of the, of the rehabilitation are like. So our child has been in therapy eight hours um, a day for five days a week, really, for almost the first year post-transplant. And as you can imagine, the attention span of a child it really needs to be accommodated, and not every child may be able to engage with that type of therapy and, and sustain attention. Um, so that's also been a learning point. Lastly, the immunosuppressive regimen that is required at this time to keep rejection at bay and under control has been quite robust. Um, so this child was on only two medications for immunosuppression for his kidney transplant, and now is on four immunosuppressive medications. And uh, immunosuppressive medications certainly bear many side effects and uh, long-term risks, so risks of diabetes, cancer, infections, all sorts of things. And so this child had already been exposed to these risks to some degree, but it's difficult to know how much that doubling of immunosuppression is actually increasing his risk. Um, and lastly, his um, kidney function has also become impaired slightly from the immunosuppression. So he had completely normal kidney function prior to the hand transplant, and now he's got modestly impaired uh, kidney function to the transplant. So I think this really opens up many questions in terms of for whom and when as we move forward. Would you say that these findings are likely to find their way back into and affect clinical practice? Yes, definitely. I think that what we've learned is that it's very important to study the brains of, of children who um, are being considered for these transplants to understand how to target therapies, per, perhaps you know where we need to accommodate therapies, and um, also to learn as more cases are done, when is the best time when a child may be able to engage and meet the demands of therapy, but also benefit the most. So we wouldn't want to wait too long for those peak windows of recovery to close. And I think further, we need to think closely about how to move this forward in children who are not previously immunocompromised. And that also will require quite a bit of greater understanding of the meaning of uh, clinical rejection and alternative therapies that we might use to reduce those risks. And so what's next for the field and what's next for you? Well, I think certainly, um, as I mentioned, uh, moving forward toward um, non-immunocompromised children um, is going to be the next step. I think for me and for my team, uh, where we continue to learn from our patient one, uh, we continue to follow his brain changes, his functional outcomes, and we're compiling those that information to improve our approach for our next candidates. So, um, for example, we realized that um, after our first case, we weren't really measuring quality of life in a uh, validated um, specific way. And so sort of trying to figure out which measures, how we can best assess um, quality of life in addition to functional outcomes is going to be very important because that's really why we're doing the procedure in the first place to improve someone's uh, quality of life. Um, and then working with other scientists in the you know, worldwide community to learn from each other so that we can eventually reduce the risks of immunosuppression and also optimize the functional gains through targeted therapies. Well, what an amazing case. There's so much there to celebrate and so much still to understand. Dr. Amara, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And um, we thank our patient and his family members um, for all the hard work they've put in.